0: Chapter 15 of Unicorns This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Unicorns by James Hewniker The Grand Manor in Pianoforte Playing Here lies one whose name is writ on ivory Might be the epigraph of every great pianist's life and the ivory is about as perdurable stuff as the water in which is written the epitaph of John Keats. Despite cunning reproductive contrivances, the executive musician has no more chances of lasting fame than the actor. The career of both is brief but brilliant. Glory, then, is largely a question of memory, and when the contemporaries of a tonal artist pass away, then he has no existence except in the biographical dictionaries creative not interpretive art endures better be immortal while you are alive which wish may account for the number of young men who write their memoirs while their cheeks are still virginal of beards while the pianist or violinist plays his autobiography and this may be some compensation for the eternal injustice manifested in matters mundane Whosoever heard the lion-like velvet paws of Anton Rubinstein caress the keyboard shall never forget the music. He is the greatest pianist in my long and varied list. Think of his delivery of the theme at the opening of Beethoven's G Major Concerto, or in that last page of Chopin's Barcarolle. It was no longer the piano tone, but the sound of distant waters and horns from Elfland, a mountain of fire blown skyward when the elemental in his profoundly passionate temperament broke loose, he could roar betimes as gently as a dove. Yet, when I last heard him in Paris, the few remaining pupils of Chopin declared that he was brutal in his treatment of their master. He played Rubinstein, not Chopin, said George Matthias to me. Matthias knew, for he had heard the divine Frédéric play. Nevertheless, Rubenstein played Chopin the greater and the miniature, has no one before or since. To each generation it's music-making. The grand manner in piano playing has almost vanished. A few artists still live who illustrate this manner. You may count them on the fingers of one hand. Rosenthal, Dalbert, Carreño, Friedheim, Reiseneur had the gift too. How many others? Paderewski I heard play in Leipzig in 1912 at a Gewandhaus concert under the baton of the greatest living conductor, Arthur Nikisch, and I can vouch for the plangent tone quality and the poetic reading he displayed in his performance of that old warhorse, the F minor concerto of Chopin. Furthermore, my admiration of Paderewski's gift as a composer was considerably increased after hearing his Polish symphony interpreted by Nikisch. How far away we were from Manru. Josefie, who looked upon Paderewski as a rare personality, told me that the Polish fantasy for piano and orchestra puzzled him because of its seeming simplicity in figuration. Only the composer, enthusiastically exclaimed "Josephi could have made it so wonderful. But the grand manner, has it become too artificial, too rhetorical? It has gone out of fashion with the eloquence of the old historians, probably because of the rarity of its exponents, also because it no longer appeals to a matter-of-fact public. Liszt was the first. He was dithyrambic. He was a volcano. Talburg, his one-time rival, possessed all the smooth and icy perfections of nesselrode pudding. Liszt, in reality, never had but two rivals close to his throne, Karl Tausig, the Pole, and Anton Rubinstein, the Russian. Van Bulow was all intellect, His Bach, Beethoven, Chopin and Brahms were cerebral, not emotional. He had the temperament of the pedant. I first heard him in Philadelphia in 1876 at the Academy of Music. He introduced the Tchaikovsky B-flat minor concerto, with B.J. Lang directing the orchestra, a quite superfluous proceeding, as von Bulow gave the cues from the keyboard and distinctly cursed the conductor, the band, the composition, and his own existence, as befitted a disciple of Schopenhauer. Oh, he could be fiery enough, though in his playing of the romantics the fervent note was absent, but his rhythmic attack was crisp and irresistible. You need only recall the pungency of his reading of Beethoven's scherzo in the Sonata, Opus thirty one, number three. It was staccato as a hailstorm two years later in paris i heard the same concerto played by nicholas rubinstein at the Trosadero exposition 1878 the very man who had first flouted the work so rudely that tchaikovsky deeply offended changed the dedication to von bulow anton rubinstein displayed the grand manner his style was a compound of tiger's blood and honey notwithstanding the gossip about his false notes He wrote a study on false notes, as if in derision. He was, with Tausig and Liszt, a supreme stylist. He was not always in practice, and most of the notes he wrote for his numerous tours was composed in haste and repented of at leisure. It is now almost negligible. The D minor concerto reminds one of a much-traversed railroad station, but Rubenstein of Virtuoso, it was in 1873 I heard him, but I was too young to understand him. Fifteen years later, or thereabouts, he gave his seven historical recitals in Paris, and I attended the series not once, but twice. He played many composers, but for me he seemed to be playing the Book of Job, the Apocalypse, and the Scarlet seraphim He had a ductile tone like a golden French horn, Josephine's comparison, and the power and passion of the man have never been equaled. Neither Taussig nor Liszt did I hear worse luck, but there were plenty of witnesses to tell me of the differences. Liszt, it seems, when at his best, was both Rubenstein and Taussig combined, with von Bulow thrown in. Anton Rubenstein played every school with consummate skill, from the iron certitudes of Bach's polyphony to the magic murmurs of Chopin and the romantic rustling in the moonlit garden of Schumann. Beethoven, too, he interpreted with intellectual and emotional vigour. Yet this magnificent Kalmuck, he wasn't of course, though he had Asiatic features, grew weary of his instrument, as did Liszt, and fought the stars in their courses by composing. But his name is written ivory and not in enduring music. Scudo said that when Sigismund Talberg played, His scales were like perfectly strung pearls falling on scarlet velvet. With lists, the pearls had become red-hot. This extravagant image is of value. We have gone back to the Talbergian pearls, for too much passion in piano playing is voted bad taste today. Nuance, then colour, and ripe conception. Technique for technique's sake is no longer a desideratum. Furthermore, as Felix Leifels wittily remarked, No one plays the piano badly, just as no one acts Hamlet disreputably. Mr. Leifels, as a veteran contrabassist and, at present, manager of the Philharmonic Society, ought to be an authority on the subject. The old Philharmonic has had all the pianists, from H.C. Tim in 1844, a Hummel Concerto, to Talberg and Rubenstein, Josefie, Paderewski and Josef Hoffmann. Truly, the standard of virtuosity is higher than it was a quarter of a century ago. Girls give recitals with programmes that are staggering. The Chopin concertos now occupy the position, technically speaking, of the Hummel and Mendelssohn concertos. Everyone plays Chopin as a matter of course, and, with a few exceptions, horribly. Yes, Mr. Leifels is right. No one plays the piano badly, yet new Rubinstein do not materialise. The year of the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia, 1876, was a memorable one for visiting pianists. I heard not only Hans von Bülow, but also two beautiful women, one at the apex of her artistic career, Annette Esipov, or Esipova, and Teresa Karenu, just starting on her triumphal road to fame. Esipova was later the wife of Leszczyteski, maybe she was married then, and she was the most poetic of all women pianists that I have heard. Clara Schumann was as musical, but she was aged when I listened to her. Esipova plays Chopin as only a Russian can. They are all Slavs, these Poles and Russians, and no other nation except the Hungarian interprets Chopin. Probably the greatest German virtuoso was Adolf Henselt, Bavarian-born, though a resident of Petrograd. He had a Chopin-like temperament and played that master's music so well that Schumann called him the German Chopin. essepova. I need hardly tell you, communicated no little of her gracious charm to Paderewski. He learned more from her plastic style than from all the precepts of Leschetizky. On a hot night in 1876, and in old Association Hall, I first saw and heard Teresa, then Teresita, Carigno, I say sore advisedly, for she was a blooming girl and at the time shared the distinction with Adelaide Nielsen and Mrs. Scott Siddons of being one of the three most beautiful women on the stage. Carreño, still vital, still handsome and still the conquering artist, till her death last spring, was in that faraway day, fresh from Venezuela, her pupil of Gottschalk and Anton Rubinstein. She wore a scarlet gown as fiery as her playing and when i wish to recall her i close my eyes and straightway as if in a scarlet mist i see her hear her for her playing has always been scarlet to me as rubinstein's is golden and Josephine's silvery the french group i have heard beginning with theodore ritter who came to new york in company with carlotta Patti, plantet still living and over eighty so i have been told by Monsieur philippe Saint-Saëns, whom I first saw and heard at the Trocadero, Paris, with his pupil Montigny Romary, Clotilde Kleber, Guillemer rizler the venerable George Matthias, a pupil of Chopin, Raoul Pugnot, who is veritably a pugnacious pianist, Cécile Chaminade, Marie Jael, and her corpulent husband Alfred Jael. d'albert surely the greatest of scotch pianists he was born at glasgow though musically educated in london is another heaven-stormer i heard him at berlin some years ago in philharmonic hall and people stood up in their excitement list ready it was the grand manor in its most chaotic form a musical volcano belching up lava scoria rocks hunks of beethoven the appassionata sonata it happened to be Or the infuriated little Vulcan threw emotional fuel into his furnace. The unfortunate instrument must have been a mass of splintered steel, wood and wire after the musical giant had finished. It was a magnificent spectacle and the music glorious. Jean d'Albert, whether he is or isn't the son of Karl Tausig, as Weimar Gossip had it, Weimar, when in the palmy days every other pianist you met was a natural son of Liszt, or else pretended to be one has more than a moiety of that virtuoso's genius. He is a great artist, and occasionally the magic fire flares and lights up the firmament of music. I think it was in 1879 that Rafael Josefi visited us for the first time, but I didn't hear him until 1880. The reason I remember the date is that this greatly beloved Hungarian made his debut at Old Chickering Hall, then at Fifth Avenue and Eighteenth Street, but I saw him at Steinway Hall, another magician with a peculiarly personal style. In the beginning you thought of the aurora borealis, shooting stars and exquisite meteors, a beautiful style, though not a classic interpreter then. With the years Josephine deepened and broadened, the iridescent shimmer was never absent. No one played the E minor concerto of Chopin as did Josephie, he had the tradition from his beloved master, Tausig, as Tausig had it from Chopin by way of Liszt. Tausig always regretted that he had never heard Chopin play. Josephi in turn, transmitted the tradition to his early pupil, Moritz Rosenthal, in whose repertoire it is the most Chopinesque of all his performances. And do you remember the Chevalier de Konski, Karl Bohemann, Franz Rimmel? S.B. Mills, who introduced here so many modern concertos, the huge Norwegian Edmund Nupur, who lived at the Hotel Liszt next door to Steinway Hall, Konstantin von Sternberg, and Max Vogrich, the Hungarian with the Chopin-like profile, in the same school as Josephie is the capricious Don Pachmann. With Josephie, I sat at the first recital of this extraordinary Russian at Chickering Hall, 1890, Josephy, with his accustomed generosity of spirit, he was the most sympathetic and human of great virtuosi, at once recognised the artistic worth of Vladimir de Pachman, This last representative of a school that included the names of Hummel, Kramer, Field, Talberg, Chopin. The little de Pachman. he was then bearded like a pirate, captivated us. It was all miniature, without passion or pathos or the grand manner but in its genre his playing was perfection, the polished perfection of an intricately carved ivory ornament. De Pacman played certain sides of Chopin incomparably, capriciously, even perversely, in a small hall, sitting on a chair that precisely suited his fidgety spirit, then if in the mood. A recital by him was something unforgettable. After De Pacman, Paderewski, Paderewski, the master colourist, the grand visionary, whose art is often strained, morbid, fantastic. And after Paderewski, why Leopold Godovsky, of course. He belongs to the Josephine de Pacman, not the Rubenstein-Joseph Hoffman group. I once called him the Superman of piano playing. Nothing like him, as far as I know, is to be found in the history of piano playing since Chopin. He is an apparition a Chopin doubled by a contrapuntalist, Bach and Chopin. The spirit of the German cantor and the Polish tone poet in curious conjunction. His playing is transcendental, his piano compositions the transcendentalism of the future, that way else retrogression. All has been accomplished in ideas and figuration. A new synthesis, the combination of seemingly disparate elements and styles, With innumerable permutations, he is accomplished. He is a miracle worker. The violet ray, dramatic passion, flame and fury are not present. They would be intruders on his map of music. The piano tone is always legitimate, never forced, but every other attribute he boasts. His ten digits are ten independent voices, recreating the ancient polyphonic art of the Flemings. He is like a Brahma at the piano. Before his serene and all-embracing vision, every school appears and disappears in the void. The beauty of his touch and tone are only matched by the delicate adjustment of his phrasing to the larger curve of the composition. Nothing musical is foreign to him. He is a pianist for pianists, and I am glad to say that the majority of them gladly recognise this fact. One evening, Godofsky was playing his piano sonata with its subtle intimations of Brahms, Chopin and Liszt. And it's altogether Godofsky in colour and rhythmic life. He is the greatest creator of rhythmic value since Liszt. And that is a large order. When he was interrupted by the entrance of Joseph Hoffman, Godofsky and Hoffman are as inseparable as were Chopin and Liszt. Heine called the latter pair the discurie of music in the apartment stood several concert grand's hoffman nonchalantly removed his coat and making an apology for disturbing us he went into another room and soon we heard him slowly practising what do you suppose some new concerto with new-fangled bedevilments o sancta simplicitas this giant, if ever there was one, played at a funeral tempo the octave passages in the left hand of the heroic Polonaise of Chopin, Opus 53. Every schoolgirl rattles them off as easy, but, with the humility of a great artist, Hoffmann practised the section as if it were still a stumbling block. Delens records that Tausig did the same. Later, conductor Artur Bodansky of the Metropolitan Opera dropped in and several pianists and critics followed, and soon the Polish pianist was playing for us all some well-known compositions by a certain Dvorsky, also an extremely brilliant and effective concert study in C minor by Konstantin von Sternberg. From 1888, when he was a wonder child here, Josio Hoffman's artistic development has been logical and continuous. His mellow muscularity evokes Rubinstein, no one plays Rubenstein as does this harmonious blacksmith, and with the piety of Rubenstein's pet pupil. I once compared him to a steam hammer, whose marvellous sensitivity enables it to crack an eggshell or crush iron. Hoffmann's range of tonal dynamics is unequalled, even in this age of perfected piano technique. He is at home in all schools, and his knowledge is enormous. At moments, his touch is at rich as Nyssel nice quartet accord. At the famous Rudolf Schirmer dinner given in 1915, among other distinguished guests, there were nearly a score of piano virtuosi. The newspapers humorously commented upon the fact that there was not a squabble. There were so many nationalities, one row at least might have been expected. As a matter of fact, if any discussion had arisen, it would not have been over politics, but about the fingering of the double-note study in G-sharp minor of Chopin, so difficult to play slowly the most formidable of argument-breeding questions among pianists. A parterre of pianists indeed, some in New York because of the war, while Paderewski and Rosenthal were conspicuous by their absence. Think of a few names. Josephie he died several months later, Gabrilovich, Hoffman, Godofsky, Karl Friedberg, Mark Hamburg, a heaven-stormer in the Rubenstein-Hercules manor, Leonard Borwick, Alexander Lambert, Ernest Schelling, Stojovsky, Percy Granger, the young Siegfried of the Antipodes, August Freymark, Cornelius Rubner, and another apparition in the world of piano playing, Ferruccio Busoni. This Italian, the greatest of Italian piano virtuosi, the history of which can claim such names as Domenico Scarlatti, Clementi, Fumaggiali, Martucci, Scambati. Is also a composer who has set agog conservative critics by the boldness of his imagination as an artist he may be said to embody the intellectuality of Wbullow, the technical brilliancy of the Liszt group. Busoni is eminently a musical thinker. America probably will never again harbour such a constellation of piano talent. I sometimes wonder if the vanished generation of piano artists played much better than those men godowski Hoffman, the lyric and most musical Harold Boer, the many sided, richly endowed, and charming Ossip Gabrilowicz, Hamburg, Busoni, and Paderewski are not often matched. Heine called talberg a king, Liszt a prophet, Chopin a poet, Hertz an advocate, Kalkbrenner a minstrel, not a negro minstrel, for a chalk burner is necessarily white, Madame playel a sibyl. And Dola a pianist. The contemporary piano hierarchy might be thus classed Joseph Hoffmann, a king, Paderewski, a poet, Godovsky, a prophet, Fanny Bloomberg Zeisler, a sibyl, Dalbert, a titan, Busoni, a philosopher, Rosenthal, a hero, and Alexander Lambert, a pianist. Well, Mr. Lambert may be congratulated on such an inscription. Duller was a great technician in his day, and when the friend of pianists, Lambert, could return after Schindler, whose visiting card read L'Ami de Beethoven, masters his modesty, an admirable piano virtuoso is revealed. So let him be satisfied with the honourable appellation of pianist, he is in good company. And the ladies, I am sorry I can't say place or dame, space forbids. I've heard them all from Arabella Goddard to Madame montigny Romary in Paris 1878 with her master Camille saint From Alide Top, Marie Krebs, Anna Melick, Pauline Fischner, Vera Timinoff, Ingeborg Bronsart, Madeleine Schiller to Julia Rivet From Cécilia Gaul to Svadi Klaus to Anna Bock, from the Amazon Sophie Menta, the most masculine of list players to Adele Marjolise, Yolande Myro, and Antoinette Zamovska Adamovska, from Elinka von Ravash to Evel Lijinska, who plays like a house of fire, from Helen Hopekirk to Catherine Goodson, from Clara Schumann to Fanny Bloomfield-Zeisler, Olga Samaroff, and the newly-come Brazilian Guima Noves, the list might be unduly prolonged. I heard Paderewski play last spring. Surely he has now the grand manner in all its dramatic splendour and without its old-fashioned pretentious rhetoric. Nor has he lost the lusciousness of his touch, a Caruso voice on the keyboard, or the poetic intensity of his Chopin and Schumann interpretations. He is still Prince Charming. Not only do I fear prolixity, but the confusing of critical values. For I write from memory, and I admit that I have had more pleasure from the intimate pianists than from the forges of tonal thunderbolts, that is, Rubinstein accepted from such masters in miniature as Josefie, Godovsky, Karl Hyman, Pachman, and Paderewski. I find in the fresh sparkling playing of Misha Levitsky, Beno Moisevich and Guimar Nouvez high promise for their future. The latter came here unheralded and as the pupil of that sterling virtuoso and pedagogue, Isidore Philippe of the Paris Conservatory. It is noteworthy that only Chopin, Liszt and von Bulow were Christian-born among the supreme masters of the keyboard. The rest, with a few exceptions, were and are members of that race whose religious tenets specifically incline them to the love and practice of music. End of chapter 15